0: Genesis chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Let's pray together. Lord, we come in to your presence today, asking that you illuminate your word to our minds and our hearts, that you would shine a light in this place, that we would see you and your work clearly, not just in the creation, but in our lives. God, we are desperate for your presence. We are desperate for transformation. God, we are desperate to be made new. And we believe, God, we believe that by the presence of your spirit, And the power in your word, you can make us new. And so, God, would you continue to form us, continue to mold us into your image. Bless what we do today, God, that it may be fruitful and that we might be changed. God, meet with us in this place and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have been fascinated by artists, One of the reasons I am so mesmerized by people who are able to make beautiful things is because I am entirely unable to make beautiful things. When it comes to the the fine arts, when it comes to drawing, when it comes to even like straight lines and stuff, I am a mess. I can't do it. And I remember one time being the most in awe of, of watching the creative process. About 20 years ago, I got to spend some time in Italy and there's a little island off the coast of Venice called Murano. Murano is known for being a hub of the art of glass blowing. And if you've ever seen somebody blow glass, it's, it's like watching the impossible. They would take with, uh, they would start with sand and they would melt the sand down and then they would end up with like this amorphous mass of what looks like lava and they have to make the final product before the glass cools off and hardens. And so these these guys are there, they're pulling out the glass and in the matter of like 15 to 20 seconds, I saw this guy make a glass Horse reared up on its hind legs, with an actual, like, detailed expression of intensity on the horse's face, and I just sat there and like, "Woe is me! I am undone. What business do I have ever trying to create anything?" Because this is how you do it. This is it was it was fascinating watching these people literally blow life, breathe life into molten glass, and making these creations. This is the way I want us to see God in this text. He's an artist in front of a blank canvas. He's a potter with a lump of of formless clay, preparing himself to make something beautiful, to literally breathe life into this world, breathe abundance into this world. He is a creative beautiful, powerful, yes, but artistic, wise, and wonderful God. He's about to make something beautiful, but he begins with something very different than what his vision will become. God could have snapped his fingers and brought an entire world of beauty into existence instantaneously. Not only did he choose to do it over six days, but he chose to bring all things out of nothing. And when he did, when he brought the materials out of nothing, when he did, it was formless and void. It was a blank canvas. It was a lump of clay. It was far from what it would become. But like any art form... An artist's true genius is revealed as much through the process as it is the final product. And so what we have today is an invitation to see God's process, to see the beginning of his process, to not only look at the beautiful world and say, God is beautiful, but to look at what it once was in its primordial state and see the contrast. Because from what it was to what it is, we see the beauty and the power and the miracle of God. And so today, that is what we are focusing on today. We're going to focus on how the process of creation begins in an empty, uninhabitable place. It's a space that God brought into existence from nothing, and yet the world begins as a desolate place. I wanted you to close your eyes for a moment. And, and think about the images that come to mind when you hear the phrase, the earth was without form and void. What do you see? If you're like me, then what you probably imagine is a picture of the world as through a telescope in outer space. It's this, it's this mass with a black backdrop just kind of suspended out there. Maybe you see it revolving around the sun. This is what uh, modern science will tell us is, is, the, is the case, that, that maybe you don't see a sphere, but it's like this, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a shape that's ever-changing, and it's kind of this picture in my mind. And that's what modern science tells us, that in the, the primordial state of the universe, as the, the young earth was taking shape, it was this swirling pool of gases and, and there's collisions and it's just this, this, you know, lava and all this stuff. And it was just, it was not its final state yet. And so if you're like me and you've been formed by a 21st century Western scientific worldview, this might be what you picture. The world is unstable and always, and always changing like an amoeba just out there in space. But we need to remember that the ancient Israelites didn't think of the earth in this way. Remember, we talked about this the last couple of weeks. To them, the word earth just meant land, right? It's the, it's the ground that we walk on. The earth is everything beneath the horizon. Everything under the sky, that is the earth. And so it is the land that we walk on that is without form and void. And so this perspective possibly brings up different images to our minds. In C.S. Lewis's second installment of his space trilogy, Paralandria, he gives a description of a newly created world. When Paralandria is coming into existence, it is described as land that is floating on the water. The land, the islands would rise and fall with the tides. They shifted in the seas. They would come close together. Then they would be separated. They were always changing. It was unstable. I think this is a fun, creative way to think about the land, the ground beneath our feet, being without form and void. Instead of looking at the earth from outer space, it's a picture that actually gets our feet on the ground, so to speak. I love these creative uh, minds that come up with things like this because it shakes us out of our natural ways of thinking. But I still think that Lewis's depiction of Paralandria is very different than the way Genesis depicts the earth. See, the phrase that gets translated without form and void is the Hebrew expression, tohu vavohu. It's really fun to say, you should try it. Tohu vavohu. All of those who said it are having way more fun than those of you who didn't. Tohu vavohu. And it's fun to say, but it has given translators trouble for centuries. See, this, this, this phrase is made up of two very interesting words. The word tohu shows up quite a bit in the Old Testament. Um, it's often associated with barrenness, like in a desert, physical barrenness. Deuteronomy 32.10 says, "'He found him in a tohu land and in the howling tohu of the wilderness.'" It's a desert land, the howling waste of the wilderness. I once drove to Fresno uh, with a German exchange student from my high school. And at some long stretch between Paso Robles and Fresno, he looks over at me and he says, I thought California was supposed to be beautiful. I said, it is. If you're in the mountains or by the ocean, even like parts of the desert are, are are mesmerizing. But this is tohu. This is, this is wasteland. But tohu has other meanings as well. Similar to physical barrenness, the word is also used to describe something that is not just physically empty, not just something that is empty of, of, of life or empty of material, um, but empty of substance, empty of meaning, it's a synonym to vanity. God speaking of man-made idols in Isaiah forty-one twenty-nine says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are tohu, wind, empty wind. So the earth being tohu means that it's not only empty of material, but it is empty of purpose. It's vanity. It's it's meaningless at this stage of God's creation. It is tohu, a wasteland. And it's also vohu. Vohu shows up less in the Bible. It only occurs three times in the Old Testament, and each time it is always accompanied with tohu. But the general understanding in its translation, uh, it it means, again, emptiness. It means void without material substance. They're very similar words. they, They sound similar too. It rhymes. It's poetic. And so tohu vavohu then is an expression that's made up of two related words that when connected by the word and communicate a single thought. We have these expressions in English also. Think about the phrase sick and tired. If you're sick and tired, you are neither ill nor are you sleepy. You're frustrated. You're exasperated. You're at the end of your rope. Two words that when taken together, have a cultural understanding that mean one particular thing. And so taken this way, this phrase, tohu vavohu, is not just fun to say. It means that the earth is a physically and purposefully barren wasteland. There is no material and there is no meaning. Some of us sometimes feel that though the world might be full of things, often those things are empty of meaning. The world is without substance. It's empty of purpose. Tim Mackey from Bible Project uses the phrase, wild and waste. That that the world is is a wasteland. It's empty. It would be wasted to remain like that. And it's wild. It's chaotic. It's 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 uncontrollable. It's Tohu Vavohu, wild and waste. And so, why is the earth Tohu Vavohu? Well, first, it's covered in water and darkness. Look in the text. It says that darkness was over the face of the deep, the Spirit of God was, was over the face of the waters. Think about a world that is shrouded in darkness and covered by water. Can life sustain, be sustained there? No, absolutely not. The ocean, the deep, uh, is always a picture in the ancient world of uh, uncontrollable power. You can't stop the tides. You can't change the ocean. You are are at the mercy of its currents and, and, and the waves. The best we can do is ride it out, right? I think surfing is actually the perfect picture of ruling and subduing the world. It is the most chaotic place in all of the planet. And yet somehow surfers make it their playground. I think if Abraham were to like stand on the beach and watch the surfers at Rincon, he'd be like, this is it. We've ruled and subdued the world. We have turned the ocean into a playground. The ancients looked at the ocean and they saw chaos. They saw power. They saw something that they could not control. They saw a place that was not their home. The ocean is not our home. And life cannot thrive in darkness. And so the reason the earth is without form and void, the reason the earth is a a wasteland, a, a blank canvas, empty of material, empty of meaning is because it's covered in darkness, it's covered in water and life cannot thrive there. And so this needs to inform how we think of this text because it means that the text is not so much, it's not describing so much the appearance of the earth, It's not describing the material structure of the earth. Rather, it's a description of the function of the earth. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that it's describing the function of the earth? What does it mean for the earth to be functional? If you remember our time from last week, we talked about how the earth was made to be a dwelling place for people. It was made to be a home The heavens and earth was this cosmic temple where God dwelled with his people. This is the function of creation. And the earth's function is to be a place for humanity. Can humans live here? No. It's not ready for us yet. And therefore, the earth at this stage in creation is non-functional. What the author is intending is not a description of what the earth is. It's not a description of what the earth is made of or what it appears to be. He is describing what the earth cannot be if something doesn't change. The earth cannot be a home. It can't be a place for life. It is uninhabitable at this point of God's Creation. But the Spirit of God is there. The Spirit of God is there, hovering over the face of the waters. The world is uninhabitable, and yet God is there. And this is what I want us to understand today that God is not distant from desolate places. God is not distant from desolate places in the world. God is not distant from the desolate places in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your children's lives, in lack of faith. God is not distant from desolate places. Throughout the Bible, God's people find themselves in desolate places situations that are desperate and hopeless, and yet God was never far from them. Think about Joseph. Joseph, the the favorite son of his father, sold into slavery by his brothers and a slave in Egypt and imprisoned in Egypt, and God was with him. Think about Moses, right? After he murders a guy in Egypt and flees and is shepherding his father-in-law's flock in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere for 40 years, desolate. And that, that is where God chose to appear to Moses from the burning bush. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, again, tohu, vavohu, desolate place, without water, without food. God was there and he brought water from rocks and he brought bread from heaven. God is not distant from desolate places. We don't like desolate places. We are allergic to discomfort. As a people, just in general, we do not like discomfort and we will do anything if if situated in discomfort long enough, we will do anything to get out of it. But it's in these desolate places. It's in the seasons of wilderness that are often the beginnings of some of God's greatest work, not just in the biblical characters. But if you've been following Jesus long enough, then you know we don't like the desolate places We don't like the pain. We would never ask for it. And if you're still following Jesus, you know as difficult as those seasons are sometimes, God was there. God is not distant from the desolate places. Where are those places in the world today? Where are the desolate places in your life today? The desolate places in your own heart, where the the areas where you just, you no longer go. The things that you no longer pray for, the people that you've just written off, they're a lost cause. Or I'm never going to conquer this sin. I'm never going to be able to break this bad habit. I'm never going to be the thing that I have been praying that I could be. And so I'm just going to learn to live with it. I'm just going to pretend like it's not there. And I'm just going to learn to live like nothing is ever going to change. Maybe you have had hope in the past that these areas would change, but now hope is too dangerous because you know what it's like to get your hopes up and believe for something and be disappointed. I've seen lots of marriages come to this place. I've seen people in careers come to this place. I have been in this place, or I'm just going to learn to live with it. Before I met my wife, I was in an incredibly unhealthy relationship for four years, and realistically, I knew I needed to get out of it for like the last three. But it was familiar. It was painful but I really didn't think God could do anything better. So I stayed disobediently. I needed to get to a point where I realized that the pain of remaining was worse than the fear of the unknown. As long as the fear of the unknown is greater than the pain of remaining, we will stay in the most hopeless of situations and we learn to live with it that's not the life that God wants for you. That's not the life that God has for you. Just remaining in the pain because you're afraid of what might be or what might not be after this. See a lot of parents and grandparents get to this place when their children abandon their faith, or stop talking to the family we pray we hope and after years after decades lose hope where's the desolate place church where's where's the where's the desolation in your heart the darkness, the barrenness, the purposeless. Maybe, maybe it's a sliver of your life. Maybe it's the whole thing. Maybe, maybe you are feeling like it's all tohu vavohu. It is all irrelevant and meaningless. And you pray that someday your life might actually mean something. But you're doubtful. And you don't know what it's going to take. That place, whatever that is, I'm I just trusting the Holy Spirit to impress things on our hearts right now. That thing that you're thinking about, that place, that relationship, that fear, that desperation, that desolation. You need to know that right now, God is not distant from that place. God is not distant from the desolations in, our lives. in fact, he may be knocking on the door right now. Today may be the day to open up, let him in, experience transformation. To so the presence of the Spirit of God in this, this wasteland of a creation in our text is the first sign that this world without purpose is not a world without hope. Just because in our lives, in the pain, we we can't make sense of it, it doesn't mean that just because it feels to be without meaning, that it is without hope. Because where the Spirit of God is, there's hope. Wherever God's Spirit dwells, nothing is impossible. God's presence in this text is the indicator that something miraculous is about to happen. If we're reading it and we go, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, cool. That's good news. Awesome. So in the beginning, God made this. The earth was formless and void. Oh, no, it's not good news. I can't live in tohu vavohu. I can't live in, in darkness and in a world that's covered in water. What in the world happened? What in the world happened to make it go from that to this? The spirit of God was there hovering over the face of the water. Oh, that's what happened. That's what happened. God's spirit is there. Though this is uninhabitable, God's spirit is there. And so I can anticipate that something beautiful is going to happen. And then it does. God speaks. God opens his mouth. He speaks. He says, let there be light. And there was light. Check this out. Light did not exist. God said that it should be. And so light had to literally come into existence to obey God's command. This is a command. Let there be light is a command from God. God is saying this thing that doesn't exist, exists. And light obeys, literally has to to come into existence just to obey, springs to existence. I just imagine what our lives would look like and what our church would look like if we, like light, sprang into action the moment God spoke. What would it look like? I mean, like dare to dream. What it would look like if God's church everywhere sprang into action, when we read something in his word, when we heard a truth in a sermon, when when God in the still small voice encouraged us to take particular action in a particular area, what would it look like if God said love and we loved, we actually loved? Or like serve people or be generous or stop that. Imagine, dare to dream what it would look like if we actually obey. Look, look we're not saved by our our obedience. We're saved by faith. But what kind of transformation would we experience? What kind of participation in the spirit of God would the world out there experience if everywhere the church went, we did what God said? I mean, it seems ridiculous to say, but I feel like we got to say it. Light comes into being just so it can obey God. What would we do to obey God? Now, God's commands are good. God's word, his commands are good. But apart from God's spirit, they can only change our behavior. God's God's commands can only change our behavior. We can be walking this way, doing this thing, and we hear, that's not good. Okay, I'm gonna go and, and do this other thing. But God has more in mind than changing your behavior. God wants to change your heart. He wants to change who you are. He doesn't just want you to do different things. He wants you to desire different things. He wants to change your motives. He wants to change why you do things, why you do the things that you do, not just change the things that you do. But God's spirit has the power to actually transform us. From the inside out, God's Spirit has the ability to transform us from what we are into what we might become. It is both by God's Spirit and God's Word that God's vision of creation begins to take shape. He takes a barren world, and He makes it beautiful. He takes a blank canvas, and He makes something significant. God is an artist. He's a craftsman in the world and in you. This is what God wants to do with you. He wants to form you. He wants to shape you. He wants to take what you might believe is empty and barren and purposeless, and he wants to fill it up and make it abundant and beautiful. He's an artist. My wife is an artist. If you've known Katie for, you know, any length of time, You've probably seen something that she has made although you might not know that she made it. She's she since her entire life when she was born, she would ask her mom for a craft and her mom would come up with some craft and she would make these crafts. So her room was filled with cr- beautiful things made from random household objects. Her her gift is not just her ability to make beautiful things, but her gift is her ability to see past what something is and see what it might become. She recently outdid herself. Uh, We've been wanting a patio swing for our yard for some time now, but we've not been able to justify the expense. But one day, she found one for free on Craigslist. So she took the truck, she went and picked it up, she brought it back, and I said, "Uh uh-uh, get it out. It was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen. It was rusty. The paint is chipping. The the canvas seat was so weathered and worn. It was torn away from the frame. You couldn't sit on it, let alone swing on it. It was a mess. I told her, I said, do you want to know why this was available for free on Craigslist? Because it would be cheaper than the original owner uh, uh, paying for bulk pickup from the garbage company. And now I'm going to have to pay a dump fee to get rid of this thing this is atrocious. And she said, you don't see what I see. And so she spent hours cleaning it and and painting it and twisting together all of these cords and knots to, to basically sew a seat back onto the frame. And she took something that was ugly and awful. And as far as I was concerned, was an eyesore and made it my favorite piece of patio furniture of all time. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And not just because it's nice to look at, not just because it takes up a nice little space in our yard, you know, the perfect little decoration, but because in the mornings we go out there and we sit on it and we swing and we talk. And, and in the afternoons when I get home from the office and the kids are, are playing in the backyard, and we sit there and we, and we, and we enjoy our family. And she homeschools our kids on the swing. It's not just something that's beautiful. It's something that has now been filled with life and, and, and fills us with life. It's, it's actually become a, a, an investment into our relationship, into our marriage. It's, it's not just a piece of art. It's a, part of, it's a part of our family. It's a part of our relationship. It's where life takes place. This is what God is doing. This is what God is doing in creation. This is who he is. This is what God does. This is what God wants to do with you. Not just take your life and make something a little more beautiful, but take your life and make it something that is filled with life. That's something that is an investment of life, of love, of beauty into the world, into relationships. He wants to make you something valuable, not just in your own eyes, but in his eyes, in the eyes of the world. He wants to take the barrenness. He wants to take the emptiness and he wants to fill it up. He wants to bring life to your life. This is what God does. He is able to look past what we are and see what we might become by the presence of his spirit and in the power of his word. Now we might think of this, we might look at this and say, as some have said of the the creation text, why did God make an empty uh, uh, world without form and, and void only to take six days to build it when he could have shown his power by doing it instantaneously. Well, yeah, God could have done that. But I don't think that would give us as much hope. Because if God makes perfect things instantly, then the moment we first believed We should have been perfected. I find a lot of comfort in knowing that God works this way because it means that in my life where I see brokenness still, where I see sin still, where I see failure and fear still, God's not done with me. No matter how desolate our lives feel, our lives are not without hope. God did not make us as we will be. I saw a guy the other day at Avocado Festival wearing a shirt that said, be patient. God's not done with me yet. And I thought, that's really cheesy. And then I thought, thank God that's true. Thank God that's true that God is not done with me yet. You're not going to roll into an artist's studio and start critiquing his unfinished work. No one's going to do that. It's unfinished. Shut your mouth. I know, I know my sculpture looks a little rough, I'm not done with it yet. But we look at ourselves in the mirror, we look at our lives, we start picking it apart. You're not done yet. You are God's workmanship. Scripture says that, that's clear, but you're not done yet. Neither is the person sitting next to you. So stop looking at your spouse. Stop looking at your siblings. Stop looking at your friends. Stop looking at whoever it is and start critiquing as if they should be something different than they are. Yes, we know that. God's working on them. They're not done yet. Let them cook a little longer. This is comforting. We're designed to grow and change. This world was made with transformation in God's mind. And so were you. And the way we experience transformation is the same way creation experiences transformation. First, how we experience transformation is by receiving God's presence. Now, granted, we can, we can experience God's presence. We can receive God's presence in prayer. You can go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask for his presence. You can experience God's presence um, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a worship gathering, uh, where the body of Christ is, the Spirit of God is in His, his people. We can, we can worship and we can experience God's presence. But I want, us to, I want us to think about something that maybe we don't think about all that often. I want us to, to pursue God's presence in the desolate places. Remember, God is not distant from the desolate places. And one reason I think we miss out on experiencing God's presence is because we want to find him in the places of celebration. We want to find him in the joy. And we see the darkness. We see the desolation. We go, God's not there. I need joy. I need celebration. I need the things that make me happy. That area of my life over there, that doesn't make me happy. God can't be found there. But God calls us to pay special attention to the places of desolation in our lives. And I think we would experience more of God's presence in our lives if we paid more attention to the areas that we don't like to think about. The places of fear and failure, the places where we can't fake it, where our weakness is obvious. How do we do that? Okay, we mentioned prayer. Prayer is an obvious way. Worship is an obvious way. But here's something else we don't often consider. And Before you have a knee-jerk reaction and throw all of your walls up, hear me out. The body of Christ, the church, is the presence of Christ in this world. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit inhabits His people And so we are invited to experience God's presence in the desolate places by inviting a brother or sister in Christ to sit in that desolate place with us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about confession in his book, Life Together. And I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially says we often confess to God. We think we're confessing to God, but we're really just confessing to ourselves. He says it's only when we actually tell a brother or sister in Christ, when we tell the body of Christ our sin, that we know for certain that we're actually opening ourselves up and allowing God access to that space. I think the same is true for the broken places. The same is true for the desolate places. We can tell God that we want his presence there, but until we actually open ourselves up make ourselves vulnerable enough and invite another brother or sister in Christ in whom the spirit dwells into that place. We're left alone there. If we want to see transformation in the desolate places, we need to let one another into those places. And if we want to see transformation in the desolate places of other people's lives, we need to be willing to sit with them there. We like the friends that like the party. God's not always calling us to celebration. Sometimes he's calling us to desolation, to sit in the darkness with a brother or sister in Christ and just be, not to fix them, but just be the presence of God, like the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, dark waters. We can be that presence to one another. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's something significant about bringing another believer into those areas of our life where we want healing, where we want change. This is why participation in the body of Christ in a believing community is essential for Christian growth. If you want to experience transformation, do not neglect to sit with another believer in the painful, hidden places. It's often those places where God is most eager to speak. And if we would experience transformation, we pursue God's presence. We also respond to God's word. Not just by reading scripture or sitting under sound teaching, by doing what it says. By not just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So many people want transformation, but when God speaks, we don't do what he says. We justify, we make excuses for why that doesn't apply to me or why well, at least I'm saved. I don't need to do that thing to be saved, so I'm not going to do it. It's not about salvation. It's about transformation. This is about becoming something like God, becoming more like Jesus. I want to be clear and just be abundantly clear. These things do not save us. Confession to another believer does not save us. Obedience does not save us. We are saved by faith by grace, through faith, not by anything we do. But if we want to grow, if you want to be transformed, if you want to see the desolate places in our lives flourishing with life once more, then we need to allow his spirit and his word to shape us. There's no way around it. Wherever you are in life, imagine. Imagine what could be possible with a fresh filling of God's spirit. With, with access, a, a freshness to his voice in your life. Imagine what life could become if God breathed life into you by his spirit, by his power in his word. What might you become if God were to make, new, make you new, breathe new life into you today? I'm sure you can dream. But imagine what is possible if you resist. Imagine what's possible if you do keep that wall up. If you resist his presence, if you resist his word, if you continue to draw the curtains and block out the light without God's intervention, you'll never become what he desires. You won't become what is possible for you to be in his presence if we continue to shut him out. Now, the reasons even many faithful Christians find themselves resisting God's presence, resisting God's word, is because deep down, I'm afraid, we don't actually believe that transformation is possible. You've asked him for it. You've prayed for it. You've, you've wanted something different, and yet things are the same if we believed that that God wanted to heal us from even our deepest wounds, and if we believed that God wanted to transform us into something more beautiful than we could ever possibly imagine, then nothing would prevent us from doing these things. If you believed, God, if I confess my sin, I'm healed, if I, if I invite you into these broken places, these places of shame, these places that I don't want anyone to see, you, if, if I actually let you have access to there and, and, and confessing and inviting brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for me and hold me accountable in this area is a way that that could happen. If you actually believed that that could bring transformation, who could stop you from doing it? But we don't believe. We believe it's possible, but we doubt that it'll happen for us. Yes, I've seen it in Scripture. Yes, I've seen it in creation. Yes, I've seen it in this person's life. But I don't know that it can actually happen for me. We doubt that it's possible. And so we learn to live with it. God saved me. Isn't that enough? I should be content with that. God will not be content until we are flourishing with life. He made the world to flourish with life. He made us to flourish with life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then you are a new creation. It's as clear as that. The old has passed away. The new has come. Jesus is the word of God, right? He is the word of God at creation. Jesus is the word that was spoken that brought all things into being. And yet when the world was resisting God, Jesus allowed himself to become like his creation so that we could become like him. If you believe that the eternal son of God became a human being, was transformed into our likeness, so that we could be transformed into his. And there's nothing in your life that's untouchable. There's nothing in your life that is, is impossible uh, from receiving transformation. We believe this. This is what God has done for us. And Jesus came not only to uh, an earth that he made, but he went into the grave. The most desolate place. Tohu vavohu in the ground, in the grave in order to bring us to life. This is what we believe. This is who God is. This is what He has done. And if Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was made a human being and went into your grave so that you could have His life, He wants you actually to have His life. Imagine that. Dare to dream that we could actually have the righteousness of Christ, that we could actually have the love of Christ, that we could actually have the compassion of Christ, that we could actually have the power of Jesus in our lives. We believe this, but do we believe that it's for us? This is what Christ has done. This is what God has done for you, for me, for this world. There's anybody here that does not know the power of Jesus to transform a desolate life? You don't need to memorize the Bible. You don't need to, to 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 check all these spiritual boxes. You say yes to Jesus because what He has done for you, He will continue to do for you, and He will bring beauty from ashes and He will raise your life from the dead. There is no place that he will not come for you. There is no trouble from which he cannot deliver you. There is no desolate place that is uninhabitable to God. If you would experience the fullness of life brought by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, then we say yes to Jesus. Not just for those who are on the brink of coming to faith, but those who have been believers for a long time to say yes to Jesus in that particular desolate place in your life where you need healing, that dark place where you need a little light shined in, that place where you in your own doing are not able to bring change, but Jesus can bring transformation. We say yes to Jesus and in faith know that though we may feel like there are places of our life that are uninhabitable, Jesus has made his home in you. And that's good news. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you did not abandon us in our formlessness, our emptiness, our unworthiness, God. But you have breathed life into this world and you've breathed life into us and you are making beautiful things. God, I pray that in this hope that we have that we would respond by saying yes to Jesus and in your presence now, Lord, that we would worship because there is no greater reason for celebration than the fact that you have rescued us from all desolation. And so we want to celebrate you in this place today, God. Stir up in our hearts wonder and worship by the power of your spirit, the power of your word. Make us new. In Jesus' name, amen.